Welcome to Playground Books, essays revisiting the stories I first read as a kid and loved enough to spend my recesses reading. Oh boy, you thought I talked a lot about the right three? You got another thing coming. Okay. So I say that at the start every time, the stories I first read and loved. But it's quite likely that I could create an entire podcast, an entire university course solely focused on Narnia. There are so many details to these books, so many elements that feel like they reach into my brain, my heart, my soul, and throttle me for my life's worth. I'm setting myself up for failure here because I didn't pick a single book. I could have just said, let's look at the first published entry in the series. It's basically written as a standalone anyway. It's the one people know. People know the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and they probably know Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy and the sacrifice of the lion in a way that it's less likely that they'll know what happened to the world of Charn, for example, who Puddleglum the Marshwiggle is, or the significance of an undragoning, or what's the correct response to complete the joke when someone says the bolt of Tash falls from above. If you're curious, answer to that last question is, does it ever get caught on a hook halfway? But when I reread these books, yes, the individual characters knock me out. Yes, there are single lines that are virtually carved into my walls, an imagery I can see if I close my eyes. But the way that these seven books change across their telling and reflect some themes while evolving others and seed ideas in one spot that become relevant much, much later brings such an astounding depth beyond any one of them taken in isolation. So I'm going to try very hard to avoid going off on tangents about Emmeth the noble Kalorman soldier, or the way Silverchair is full of problem children doing nothing but messing up and making mistakes and managing to succeed anyway, or about the movie adaptations at all, because don't get me started, I have literally given multiple hour monologues complete with whiteboard diagrams about the plot structure of the screenplays. And instead, I'll stick to the deceptively simple prompt of how C.S. Lewis treats the archetypal hero's journey. What is the hero's journey? Let's start there. There is this literary scholar named Joseph Campbell whose work focused on comparative mythology, basically looking at literature and stories across cultures and across time. He wrote a book in 1949, year before the first Narnia book was published, called The Hero with a Thousand Faces that introduced the theory that different mythology systems from all over the world have these stories of a hero going on a journey that all fall into a similar pattern that can be broken down into common elementary steps. And once you start looking for the patterns, you can see them everywhere, from the Buddha to Luke Skywalker. The Hero with a Thousand Faces codified the hero's journey into 17 steps in three main stages. First, being in the ordinary world, then entrance into the unknown world, and then coming back out of the unknown into the known world again. In this way, it works as a frame narrative, starting and ending in the known world, with the bulk of the adventure taking place in the unknown world. That's going to be important. I'm going to run through the list of the 17 steps here, just to give you all the terminology, because you won't be able to hear my quote marks around each one when I talk about them in a moment. We start with the call to adventure. There's refusal of the call, supernatural aid, and crossing of the first threshold. 
That's the first important stage, steps one through four. Once we're in the unknown world, we continue with belly of the whale, which is the point of no return, the road of trials, meeting with the goddess, temptation, atonement with the father, apotheosis, the ultimate boon, refusal of the return, magic flight, rescue from without, and crossing of the return threshold. And now that we're back in the known world on the other side of the frame narrative, we have the last two steps being master of two worlds and freedom to live. That was a lot. One of the easiest ways to actually understand how these steps work is to see how they appear in a story. And, fortunately for us, C.S. Lewis studied the classics. Narnia stories, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe most closely follows Campbell's structure of a hero's journey. The Pevensey children are sent away from London during the Blitz to stay in the country with the professor. Exploring the house, Lucy ventures inside the wardrobe that acts as a gateway to Narnia, receiving her call to adventure that exemplifies how Campbell defines it as, quote, a blunder, apparently the merest chance, that reveals an unsuspected world. When her siblings don't believe her, that's the refusal of the call. Supernatural aid comes in various forms, including the fawn Mr. Tumnus, whom Lucy meets, as well as the professor, whom Susan and Peter turn to for advice before they approach the wardrobe for themselves. This is an example of how you can apply the ideas of these steps, not exactly literally. The professor isn't supernatural himself, but he's had experience with magic and is able to share that knowledge, so he still fits as supernatural aid. Mr. Tumnus also deserves special mention here, because he's the first person Lucy meets in Narnia, so he represents the strange and magical world she's crossed into. But not only that, Campbell discusses how, quote, the best-known classical example of this dangerous presence dwelling just beyond the protected zone is the Arcadian god Pan who is the god of the wild and associated with, and sometimes depicted as, a satyr, which is the ancient Greek equivalent of Roman fauns like Mr. Tumnus. I swear, this is such a small detail, but that's what gets me about comparative literary theory and labeling details that you don't notice you notice. Tumnus could have been a talking animal. They meet plenty of those later. And there's also centaurs and dwarves and jinn in Narnia. C.S. Lewis makes Mr. Tumnus a fawn, aligning Narnia with the imagery and the conventions of mythology that the monomyth serves as a record of. Maybe you didn't know before that fawns have this place in mythology, and maybe it also has come to you in other cultural imagery and illusions, and either way, it feels like it fits, so that this detail, which could otherwise be arbitrary, is actually connected to a larger literary tradition. Moving on, the first major step forward in the plot, and also the first important point of comparison across the series, is the crossing of the first threshold, where all four children enter Narnia together. They pass the point of no return, the belly of the whale, when they decide to stay and search for Mr. Tumnus instead of leaving, and Edmund sneaks away to betray them to the White Witch. The other three endure a road of trials running from the White Witch and her wolves, 
Edmund experiences temptation for Turkish delight and power, and the return of spring to break the witch's eternal winter serves as a meeting with the goddess, who is typically connected with nature and motherhood. All four reach atonement with the father when they meet the lion Aslan, the king, the lord of the whole wood, and, just in case it wasn't obvious, Narnia's Christ figure. The children's apotheosis, which is another word for the culmination or climax with some divinity connotations, occurs with the sacrifice of Aslan, and his subsequent return and victory in the battle leads them to their ultimate boon as they are crowned kings and queens of Narnia. The latter steps of the hero's journey that comprise the resolution and falling action are extremely compressed in the book, though they are all there. The Pevensey siblings, ruling over Narnia's Golden Age, entirely forget about their former lives, which is a pretty clear refusal of their return. That is, until they have a magic flight in their hunting party going after a fabled white stag that serves as their rescue from without to lead them back to Lantern Waste and the door to the wardrobe so they can cross their return threshold. I'm going to quote a literary scholar named David Emerson now, so I can disagree with him. This comes from an otherwise pretty solid paper called Innocence as a Superpower, Little Girls on the Hero's Journey. The return through the wardrobe at the very end of the book seems anticlimactic in terms of the quest archetype. They bring no boon back to England. The return phase of this version of the hero's journey must be seen as taking place in Narnia rather than England. The fulfillment of the prophecy leads them to the four thrones of Ker Paravel. While this reading may result in a more satisfying summary, it ignores the crucial understanding of the hero's journey as a framework narrative, where the adventure in the unknown world is bracketed by a beginning and ending set in the mundane world. The monomyth necessitates a return home as a fulfillment of the character's growth and achievements in the course of the story. It also kind of ignores that C.S. Lewis is writing not a full allegory, not yet, but it's got some tinges to it. This isn't just a fantasy book, it's also a children's book with a lesson to teach. Although the Pevensies bring no literal treasure home, their experiences of Narnia, and more importantly, of Aslan, remain with them, acting as a metaphor for their nascent faith. The refrain, once a king or queen of Narnia, always a king or queen of Narnia, assures readers of this character growth even before sequels were written to fulfill the promise. However, Emerson does rightly recognize the hero's extreme reluctance to return home, which becomes more significant as the series progresses and the understanding of the real and magical worlds as a dichotomy between life and death develops. Before I go on, I want to dispel a misunderstanding. If you were familiar with the hero's journey before listening to this podcast, there's a 50-50 chance that when I first mentioned it, you wanted to groan because of how overridden and worn out it is as a trope. People love to take the hero's journey and cram every story they ever come across into the shape of it, squishing and pulling and making claims that it really does fit, so long as you've redefined half the steps, rearranged the rest, and probably drop a few as well. People take the message of the hero with the thousand faces to mean that there is only one type of hero, and only one type of story. It's a fair confusion, the title does lead you in that direction, but it's, I mean, obviously not true. 
Just as there are a thousand narratives and myths with heroes that do fit into the outline, there are a thousand others that don't. It's the same fallacy as saying that every story with an ensemble cast is a five-man band, with even the count of characters equaling five being optional. But there are some stories with true five-man bands, and some that fit sort of halfway, just as there are stories that fit the hero's journey like a glove, and others where it's interesting to notice the plot points mimic a few of the 17 steps. With even the rest of the Chronicles of Narnia, none comply with the full hero's journey quite as neatly as The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe does. Which is kind of the point, but we'll come to that more later. Campbell's hero's journey isn't law, and nor is it an uncovering of a hidden conspiracy theory, like all the great poets and storytellers across the world conspired to hide 17 explicit clues in their epics and religions. It's really only acknowledging two things. One, that ideas and images in stories come from somewhere. They aren't created in isolation. And two, people tend to come up with the same ideas, or at least to find the same ideas important enough to remember and repeat and use again, even across cultures and time. The hero's journey is a tool. It's been used as a tool for writing. For example, I did mention Luke Skywalker earlier, and George Lucas has credited Campbell and the scaffolding of the hero's journey that he used when creating the first Star Wars movie. But also, it's a tool for reading, and for examining and dissecting stories. I don't know for certain if C.S. Lewis intentionally made Mr. Tumnus a fawn to be evocative of the Greek god Pan. I kind of don't care. It's relevant that he was well-versed in classical theology and literature, so he probably did know the tropes he was drawing on, and in fact he writes acknowledgement into the book at one point. When the Pevensies are following a robin, Edmund asks if it might be leading them into a trap, and Peter says, Still, a robin, you know. They're good birds in all the stories I've ever read. I'm sure a robin wouldn't be on the wrong side. C.S. Lewis knew he was contributing to the literary canon and the body of fantasy and how we tell fairy tales. I'll mention more clues of this later on when we come to them. But I can still talk about how the Chronicles of Narnia treats and reimagines the hero's journey even if Lewis never read Campbell. Because there doesn't need to be an intent stated from the author that this or that idea was or wasn't the point to permit me to run analysis on a work. That's not to say it wasn't, but it's a debate for the historians and the biographical literary critics, and I'm much more interested in structuralism myself. We can see traditional story structures begin to falter in the third published book of the Narnia series, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, in which Lucy, Edmund, and their cousin Eustace join King Caspian and Reapy Chief the Mouse on a journey to the end of the world in search of seven lost lords. Although the ending raises questions, the majority of the book does follow literary tradition. In this case, a specific example of the hero's journey called an Imbram tale. William Flint Thrall outlines the genre as, quote, a sea voyage tale in which a hero, accompanied by a few companions, wanders about from island to island, meets other world wonders everywhere, 
and finally returns to his native land, end quote. The Odyssey is the big referent of this, as well as a few old Irish epics. The voyage of the Don Treader includes many hallmarks of the hero's journey, although, like I said, it doesn't follow the structure as strictly as the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. They cross the first threshold through a magical painting with little opportunity to delay or resist the call, apart from Eustace's complaining both before and after they've been forcibly started on their journey. I'm not going to talk about Eustace much here because really I could go on, but his character arc over this book is heartbreakingly beautiful as you see him turn from this really desperately unpleasant person you just don't want to be around him at the start. I mean, the first sentence of the book is, there was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub and he almost deserved it, which, you know, is bold words coming from our good Clive Staples Lewis. And then he's forced to confront his own snobbery and disdain for what truly matters and is completely transformed, all while still retaining his flaws and unique characterization. Here's another spot where Lewis acknowledges that he knows what he's doing in telling these stories. Eustace's horribleness is explained in large part by him having read all of the wrong books and none of the right books. They pass the belly of the whale when they sail beyond the Lone Islands into uncharted waters, and the majority of the book consists of their road of trials from island to island, where they experience temptations of greed, pride, and vanity, followed by personal atonements with Aslan. The voyage is capped off with a meeting with the goddess, here the daughter of Ramendu, a retired star. However, like other Imram tales, which serve not only as adventures, but also, quote, as metaphors for the spiritual growth of the protagonists, the journey of the Dawn Treader carries a religious undercurrent. Unlike in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the Christ-like sacrifice and resurrection analogy acts on the characters, in this book, they actively seek their religious figure Aslan and the salvation he represents. Ostensibly, they're looking for the Seven Lords, but they're also eager to sail east with the possibility of discovering Aslan's country, as the lion always appears and returns from across the glistening eastern sea. With Aslan's country as a stand-in for heaven, Voyage of the Dawn Treader shows C.S. Lewis taking these steps to shape his plots for theological questions, particularly those concerning life after death. This immediately clashes with Campbell's hero's journey, which is supposed to culminate in the hero becoming master of the two worlds, with, quote, freedom to pass back and forth across the world division. The voyage of the Dawn Treader appears to lead Caspian and the Pevensies toward the destination and ultimate boon of Aslan's country, yet such a threshold is not within the hero's power to cross. The key to understanding this internal conflict is the character of Reapy Sheep the Mouse. Reapycheep first appears in Prince Caspian as an important leader in the Narnian army, and through the voyage of the Dawn Treader, his primary motivation, other than fighting everything in his line of sight, is to reach Aslan's country. He's most excited and most determined to follow the journey east to its end, and his fate at the end of the Dawn Treader acts as an example for the children protagonists and prefigures later movements in the series. As the Dawn Treader approaches the end of the world, the water becomes shallow, and Edmund, Lucy, Eustace, and Reby Cheap move forward in a rowboat alone. Yet, at this point in the novel, the children have completed their adventure. They found the missing lords, and each had personal trials and moments of growth, 
So when they meet Aslan at the boundary, where the water is blanketed with lilies and the last sea rises up in a wave 30 feet high, their hero's journey has come to its end. The religious references are super overt here. Just in case you were confused by the fact of Aslan being a lion, this time he appears first as a lamb and tells the children, there in your world I have another name, you must learn to know me by that name. Not subtle. Aslan allows Reepicheep to enter his country, but the Pevensies must cross the return threshold and go back into the real world. This matches the pattern of Amaram's stories where, quote, the worthy are welcome to stay in paradise, while others are ordered to return home, representing the second half of the framework narrative in the mundane world. That comes from a paper called The Child's Voyage and the Imram Tradition in Lewis, Tolkien, and Pullman. Also a pretty good read. When Aslan bars the children from entering his country at this point in the series, he obliges them to continue the hero's journey around which the voyage of the Dawn Treader is structured. But through Reepicheep, Lewis demonstrates that a return to the known world is not the ultimate destination for all heroes. In this subplot, and in the religious imagery, he's developing the chronicles of Narnia beyond simple fantasy adventures for children in both the literary structure and the deeper moral messages, and he's hinting that we as readers can't rely on these stories being safe and simple. Before I get into the last battle, which I mean, trust me, I'm only going to scratch the surface. I do want to mention where the other four books in the series fit within this larger movement. As a whole, they follow the trend plotted out by the three I'm focusing on, but there are also a few exceptions. To start, Prince Caspian and the Silver Chair, books two and four in publication order respectively, mainly follow the structure of the hero's journey as in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Once the heroes find some way of entering Narnia, they embark on an adventure with a clearly defined goal to restore order to the kingdom. In Prince Caspian, they must usurp the invading Telmarines. In Silver Chair, they must find the lost Prince Rillian. And at the end, they reluctantly return home to their own world. We also get a reiteration of the representation of Aslan's country as heaven in Silver Chair, when King Caspian, now old, dies and arrives there to be brought to new life by Aslan. However, despite the common elements of story structure, there's something really unsettling and perturbing for young readers in the turnover of heroes, as one by one, or two by two, actually, the children are told that they're too old for Narnia and they will never come back. Only time I'll mention the movies, but both Caspian and Don Treader nail this deep, bittersweet melancholy. The song The Call from the end of the Caspian movie, very nearly a surefire way to get me to cry. By Silver Chair, which is also a much darker book than the ones that came before, all the original heroes have been replaced by others who never quite find their footing in Narnia, like the Pevensies who ruled as kings and queens. Through these changes, we're troubling the relationship between the real and the magical world. Crossing the threshold in either direction proves more difficult than initially imagined, which subsequently casts the entire structure of the hero's journey into question. Okay, so if you're unfamiliar, the Narnia books were not written in chronological order. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe came first, then Prince Caspian, then Voyage, and Silver Chair, but then we have two prequels, you can call them. 
The horse and his boy is set during the reign of the Pevensies, while the magician's nephew takes place long before even the events that led them through the wardrobe. Magician's nephew mostly is taking on the heavy lifting of explaining Narnian lore and the backstory of details already established. Don't get me wrong, it's beautiful and a great novel in its own right, but it is also a prequel that's a little constricted by the predetermined end. It does have a few story beats in common with the monomyth, but also it's contributing to the strangeness of these being children's books because it's a Genesis story about the creation of Narnia out of darkness. There's actually something really moving to me that it's written so late in the series. It's the sixth published book, making it so that the birth of Narnia is the last thing we read before its death. Alternatively, The Horse and His Boy is the outlier of the Chronicles, told entirely from a perspective within the world of Narnia, rather than following the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve from our world that find their way in. And actually, the main characters aren't even Narnian. One is from Kalorman, and the other from Arkenland. I mean, I guess the horses are Narnian, so I take that back. The protagonists are Narnian, but still, it doesn't match the other books. Because of this, the story lacks the obvious thresholds into and out of a magical world, and many of the resulting themes become less relevant. However, it does feel like a trial run in one way in that Lewis repeats this tactic of beginning the story within Narnia in The Last Battle, which is our first big hint that the finale of the series is not going to follow the steps of the hero's journey as dutifully as the debut. From the first pages, Last Battle feels different from any of the other books in the series, even The Horse and His Boy, which at least includes context of the golden age of the Pevensey's rule over Narnia in its opening lines. In contrast with the other stories that set their child protagonists off on their adventures as quickly as possible, Last Battle begins with the creature who will become the villain. Seven generations after the last time we've been in Narnia, Shift the Ape takes advantage of Aslan's long absence and dresses his cowardly friend Puzzle the Donkey in an old lion skin to masquerade him around as Aslan and gain power for himself, also facilitating an invasion from the neighboring land of Kalorman. This spells the close of Narnia. The first few chapters, to say the least, are strangely written for the beginning to a children's book. Readers are introduced to a world at its end. C.S. Lewis brings in King Tyrion and his best buddy, Jewel the Unicorn, sorry, I love them, only after the story has gotten underway. And although Tyrion acts as the point-of-view character for the first half or so of the book, he doesn't follow any recognizable steps of the hero's journey that appear so often in the rest of the series. Tyrion already lives in Narnia, so he crosses no threshold away from a known world, and he doesn't answer any typical call to adventure, instead rushing off into a war with unclear sides, murdering some guys, and then feeling such remorse that he hands himself over to the enemy. There's a metatextual comment that acknowledges just how much we've departed from the typical adventure story structure. After thinking about the events of prior books, Tyrion says, that sort of thing doesn't happen now. But we've got to get our heroes into the story at some point, 
and the Pevensies and the other protagonists from the series appear to Tyrion in a dream, but even then they're unknown to him, and only Peter gives his name to Tyrion and the readers. Which, I will say, is a real goosebumps moment when you're a few chapters into this book, dryads are dying, Narnia is getting effectively strip-mined, the closest thing we have to a protagonist is tied to a tree waiting to be executed, and out of this dark and confusing vision, a man at a table of seven people stands up and says, Shadow or Spirit or whatever you are, if you are from Narnia, I charge you in the name of Aslan, speak to me. I am Peter the High King. Eventually, Eustace and Jill, who is a classmate of Eustace's first introduced in the Silver Chair, don't get me started on Jill, who fights for her spot as one of the seven friends of Narnia, to the point where she takes archery lessons hoping to be better equipped if she ever gets to go back. I love her. They come to rescue Tyrion, and they report on the plot of the Pevensies trying to get back to Narnia. Our heroes, our Pevensies, who we still arguably know and love the best, even if Eustace is in just as many books as Peter, they're confined to this secondhand retelling. Jill gives the spark notes of how they needed to go and break into a house to find magic rings from the magician's nephew, which is just freaking hilarious because there's a whole adventure there that's barely mentioned because that's not the point of the story at the moment. But this is actually something that I really simultaneously adore and find just a little exasperating about Narnia, is that it's so unexhausted. C.S. Lewis could have written literally dozens more books in this world just out of details and time periods that he mentions in passing. Like, did you know that in Narnia there is an underground world full of living gemstones? It's called Bism! We go there once! <laughs> I'm getting off topic. But taken together, the first half of The Last Battle respects scarcely any genre conventions, positioning itself far from following a rigid story structure like the hero's journey, and the latter half of the book only gets stranger, but also more thematically salient, as the series comes to a close. The ending of The Last Battle it's like squarely in the middle zone between horrifically traumatizing, buck wild, and literal transcendence. Which is to say, we are jumping far away from the pattern set by the previous books, and also getting a commentary on the expectations of heroes and happy endings. Tyrion, Eustace, and Jill lose the titular battle, and it's harsh. Times like these, you remember C.S. Lewis fought in World War I and saw his friends die? Because so many other times in the series, we cut away from the big battles, or they get told very quickly. But here, C.S. Lewis kills like four dogs at once, and that's only the microcosm of your world literally being irreparably overrun. I'm skipping over so much here, but with none of the context... They all pass through a doorway and reunite with the other friends of Narnia who have been protagonists over the course of the series. Together, they watch the world of Narnia come to an end and be swallowed by darkness. But they find themselves with the other good creatures in a new land. This turns out to be Aslan's country, appearing as a version of Narnia with none of the bad and all of the good. In this way, we're blowing wide open the concept of the real and magical world within the hero's journey as metaphors for life and death. 
Although Campbell conceived of the unknown world as darkness, which the hero ventures into and returns from, as if, quote, coming back out of that yonder zone, the Chronicles of Narnia flips this dichotomy on its head, and the magical world itself proves to be the ultimate destination. The Pevensies and their friends have rejected their return threshold for the final time, and instead of the ultimate boon being a reward of knowledge and experience to take back to their ordinary world as in past stories, they are fulfilled by being allowed to stay in Aslan's country. Here's the end of the last battle. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the last. So here we've got it spelled out entirely this commentary on the expectations of fantasy adventure novels. Rather than rejecting the hero's journey, an option for which Susan can serve as an emblem, as she stopped believing in Narnia and is the only Pevensey sibling not there in the last battle, which, who don't get me started on how incredibly misrepresented and erroneously named the so-called problem of Susan is, but Rather than rejecting the journey, he's discarding the finite and therefore limiting nature of framing narratives that end the heroes back where they began. The characters not only ignore but transcend their return threshold, moving beyond both their familiar home and the magical world they have conquered through their adventures. The refrain of the end of this book is further up and further in as they explore an increasingly inexpressible paradise. We're reaching beyond literary tradition, and while that's fascinating in and of itself, it does have a deeper goal of imparting greater theological conclusions about the power and necessity of faith. From the beginning, Narnia is full of religious analogies, to strengthen the stories being told, but also just to express Lewis's opinions. We've got the obvious analogy of Aslan as a Christ figure, enacting a sacrifice and resurrection narrative, and even Narnia itself is a metaphor for faith, with Lucy's first trial being a test of faith when her siblings don't believe her about the wardrobe. The magic and character growth that the Pevensies find in Narnia stand in for religion and the lessons it holds for young children. When Susan stops believing in Narnia and treats her memories as make-believe, she not only acts as a hero who refuses her adventure, but also represents those who turn away from religions they were raised in. Which, by the way, this isn't, like, a condemnation of Susan. You've got to remember that C.S. Lewis was a reconvert to Christianity after being an atheist in his 20s. When Joe makes a comment about Susan only being interested in nylons and lipstick and invitations, those aren't stand-ins for femininity. They're stand-ins for material and worldly preoccupations, and the dedication of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe literally says, someday you will be old enough to start reading fairy tales again, and I said I wasn't going to get into the problem of Susan, which isn't a problem unless you take a single sentence drastically out of context. Okay. Lewis carries these messages through the end of the series, which is really a straight-up revelation apocalypse. 
borrowing imagery from the Bible like the sun going dark and the population being sorted on Judgment Day. The ending of the last battle promises new and never-ending adventures beyond those recorded in the Chronicles. Such adventures of new life after death are fundamentally at odds with the cyclic hero's journey, which necessitates a return home because, as Campbell remarks, insofar as one is alive, life will call. Fortunately, with a bunch of air quotes around it, when the children arrive in Aslan's country to stay, they haven't simply entered Narnia for a short quest like in the past. Um, they're dead? There was a train derailment, and all of them have died in the real world. Which, like, Jack, Jack, this is a children's book, and you just mass-murdered all your main characters and did an apocalypse. Like, I'm losing my mind over here. I love this series so much. Because... This is literal death, but figurative growth beyond temptation for their past lives to which they cannot return. Their deaths demonstrate both Lewis's opinions on entrance into heaven due to faith and the series' full breakaway from the structure of framework narratives such as the hero's journey. Reading through the Chronicles of Narnia with an eye on these structuralist interpretations of plot lines and character growth shows how we gradually shift away from the traditional story structures that make for easier, nicer, safer children's stories like in the earlier installments of the series. Like I said, Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe is a super clean hero's journey. Voyage of the Dawn Treader has the framework narrative in the Imram tradition, and yet the religious themes steadily rise to the forefront, displacing reliance on these literary patterns. When everybody dies in Last Battle and they arrive in their version of heaven rather than respecting the return threshold of the hero's journey, the books are arguing that the final destination of the virtuous hero does not lie in the known world of their home, but rather further up and further in, beyond the unknown world of their adventures. From the beginning of the Chronicles to its end, we're systematically dismantling traditional story structures and the expectations of the monomyth in order to reach beyond the usual genre bounds of children's fantasy, and prompt these larger theological questions about religious conviction and life after death. I mean, I make jokes about how Last Battle is barely a children's book, but the really beautiful thing is that it is. And it can have all these weighty ideas and wild divergences from expected storylines, but that only makes it all the richer without being inaccessible. If you've read The Chronicles of Narnia or this discussion was interesting to you, I don't recommend this for all the books I've covered, but in this case, I really do recommend a reread. There's such an enormous depth to these books, and they get away with it by being disarming fairy tales. Beyond that, there's a scholarly journal called Mythlore, focused on Mythiopeic literature, and specifically on the Inklings, which was the name of the writers' group that C.S. Lewis and also J.R.R. Tolkien and others were a part of. The papers I cited in this episode came from there, and another good one is Girls in Narnia, Hindered or Human, by Carla Foss-Jones, 
which breaks down the female characters across the series. You can get the journal's whole back catalog free online, and I really just get a lot of joy reading formal academic debate about Reapy Cheap and Retired Stars. Thanks for listening. The music is by David Hillowitz, the books are by C.S. Lewis, the opinions are by me. For the next episode, I'll be rereading Out of the Dust by Karen Hess. Talk to you then. Thank you.